This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Half with you this afternoon. Flood predictions for a peak of between 190 and 220 gigalitres a day coming over the border have been reinforced today. I'll have some more details on some of the support that you're going to be able to access and uh, some of the information that has come out today regarding the flooding situation on the River Murray. And Grain Producers SA expects uh, an emergency permit to use double-strength mouse bait will be extended into 2023. It comes as the, there's been some pretty big crops, there's been some lodging and wind issues, so it's been welcomed by farmers. So I'm expecting that we're going to see a, a build-up of population, particularly with this cool weather as well and moisture that's around, uh, and the feed availability has just suggested there's going to be quite a lot of that. More on that soon, but... We'll get to one of the biggest issues, particularly during harvest, but really all round, year round, roads. And with all this water as well, the roads are just deteriorating right around the place. Near home, we've got potholes everywhere. And now South Australia's top 10 worst grain roads have been announced. Now, do you think you can pick the number one worst road? You can let me know which ones you think are no good on 04, 04679228891 or you can call in on 1300 222891. But it seems after a bit of a survey by Grain Producers SA, the worst road in South Australia, as voted by you, is on the York Peninsula now, the uh, Grain Producers SA has released its first worst grain road report after submissions from nearly 150 farmers and truck drivers. And the Upper York Road, in particular between Arthurton and Kupara, was voted as the grain freight route that needs the most work. GPSA CEO Brad Perry says road users wouldn't be surprised that this was voted in at number one. And I think this is a road that's popped up too, is uh, at the top of uh, lists on... on generally regional road users. Um, But it really shows that even though there has been um, small licks of investment in uh, this road and and the top 10 worst grain roads, that, you know, we're a long way to go from uh, getting these roads up to speed and uh, for efficiency and safety for our grain producers. How many submissions were put forward and how many were for the, the number one road? Yeah, so we had nearly 150 individuals put in entries of roads. About 64% of those were grain producers and about 16 were truck drivers, identified as truck drivers, um, and about 58 different roads entered all up. So um, we narrowed that down to the top 10 based on the number of submissions for each road, um, and we got a yeah really diverse spread of roads right across the state. Did the Arthurton to Kalpara road stand out uh, with the amount of votes? I think the top three were generally quite close as far as um, votes, but certainly the Upper York Road, the, the Arthur-Kalpara 36-kilometre stretch there was, was definitely a highlight um, of the, the grain road campaign and there was a lot of comments about lack of maintenance, crack sides, uh, it was uh, unsuitable for, for trucks and too narrow. Uh, some of these comments are just amazing to read um, and we released a report and it's got all the comments in there and, and some of the feedback from grain producers on these roads. Were these comments similar from, from 1 to 10 uh, of the, the worst roads? No. Well, I think there is, um, yeah, there's generally a theme on 
on potholes and undulating surfaces and, you know, and narrow roads without shoulders. But each road seems to have its own issues and, and be in different states of, of district repair. So I think that at some point, even, you know, we've got truck drivers and grain producers having to veer onto the other side of the road just to avoid some of these potholes and poor surfacing because they just feel their safety is compromised. And that's really shocking to read that. What will you do with this information now, Brad? Uh, what we'll be doing is writing to key stakeholders in uh, state, federal and local government, um, highlighting the report uh, and really saying, hey, this road, these are the roads that grain producers and, and truck drivers community members have told us that need urgent attention. The, the challenge that we've got is there's always sort of copious and, uh, amounts of money for roads um, and there's no doubt long lists of, of priorities. What we're saying as grain producers, we carry, uh, well this year we'll carry nearly uh, and contribute $4.5 billion to the state's economy. These roads should be a priority, not only for efficiency purposes, but also for, for safety of truck drivers, grain producers and, and the general community at all road users. Speaking of road users, there's probably a lot of road users that have already put forward their complaints about these roads or their, their comments on what they're seeing. What is it about this report that you think might make a difference? Well, this is a really unique insight because we went to grain producers and also to have the truck drivers. I mean, some, some would be both and some would, would cart their own grain. But this is a unique list from perspective of the grain industry. So normally we see some of these lists will come out and, and, and complaints will come out around general regional communities. This is what the grain industry wants. So this is what we'll be lobbying on their behalf and, and we'll be relentless about this as well, saying, hey, these are the priorities. The grain industry has spoken and these are the areas that need investment immediately. So I think as we look right through, there's a mix of federal highways, state government roads and then there's, even in the whole list, if we went past the 10, there's quite a few council-owned roads. So what we're doing is, um, and we're not saying we're going to focus on, on the number one road, uh, we are, we're going to put our efforts into the top 10. So each of those roads, we're going to put in effort to highlight the urgency and really highlight some of those comments that have come in from grand producers. I mean, I think it's really unsafe to just sit back and say, no, we're not going to invest in those roads after reading this report. CEO of Grain Producers SA, Brad Perry. Chris Maloney is a farmer at Atherton on the York Peninsula and the stretch of road that's been named as the worst grain road in SA is one that he would use quite often. However, at the moment he's choosing to use an alternative route because he says it's just not safe enough to drive trucks on. Mr Maloney says other roads in the area are up to standard, but for some reason the short stretch between Atherton and Kalpara has not been fixed. Oh, the, I suppose the worst part of it is probably like a, a 10 kilometre stretch, 10 to, 10 to 12k stretch, sort of in the Atherton Melton area. I think we've been yeah, very lucky to have a lot of work done on some roads on York Peninsula uh, over the last sort of 12 months, but Kalpara Atherton has always been a standout. Certainly for my lifetime, it's probably the worst road that we've got. What are the issues on that road? Uh, the main issues are the, the width of the road and also the, the bumpiness. Like, uh, it sort of just needs to be ripped up and, and redone again if you're going to have two trucks going in different directions on that road in a safe and efficient way. When it comes to the width, what are the issues there? Can you get two trucks, uh, you know, coming towards each other? No, so at the moment, if you've got two trucks going in, in opposite directions, one of the trucks will have to will have to pull off the road to be able to get through. How often do you use this road? Uh, well, at the moment, like, we would like to be using that road daily throughout harvest and we would be using it throughout the year post-harvest for direct deliveries to storage sites at Malala or in Adelaide for our, for our lentils or cereals. So I guess peak time of harvest, but then post-harvest 
uh, we'll be using it for January through to March, April, and then again throughout the year for, for fertiliser and, and other grain. But at the moment, you're choosing not to use it, is that right? Yeah, at the moment, we'll detour because it's obviously less efficient to go around, but it's just safer. What would that be costing you to, to have to detour? Yep, yeah, the time and fuel are our, are our biggest biggest costs, but also, yeah, safety is the, the thing that's lingering, I suppose, is um, that you need to have safe corridors to direct you to deliver your grain, especially, yeah, especially if you're employing people or just in general for the public. Has there been talk from local farmers in the past about what can be done for this road or some, have submissions been put forward in the past? Yeah, I think there's always been uh, a lot of conversations about the Arthurton um, Colpara stretch, just like the, a couple of other stretches around the Old Peninsula, which have had good work, but this one is definitely one that's always on the, the top of the tongue for a lot of local farmers. And what are you hoping this report can do? Well, I suppose we'd like to just highlight that we've had some really great work done around the Auckland on some roads, but this is probably the standout, or it is obviously the standout road of concern, especially this year when GPSA is predicting that we were going to generate $4.5 billion in state revenue, which is obviously an exceptional result, but we still need to get the grain to the customers in an efficient and safe manner. So this is probably our uh, blockage at the moment. Arthurton farmer Chris Maloney speaking with Brooke Nindorf, and you can see the report and the roads that made the top 10 online at the GPSA website. Minister for Regional Roads Jeff Brock has been visiting the Air Peninsula uh, this week and has been looking at uh, some roads on the list and spoke to the ABC this morning. And he says he'll meet with GPSA and some locals to discuss what this report can do to move things forward, particularly on the, that Upper York Road that was obviously voted in as the number one worst grain road. And it seems as bit of support for this. It seems like the York Peninsula roads are a bit of a focus. Let me know which ones you aren't terribly keen on or find uh, a bit dangerous. Uh, Graham from Kulpara heartily endorses uh, that uh, the worst road is the Kulpara to Arthurton Road and Kulpara to Wallaroo, the uh, main freight route, grain freight, tourism, no overtaking lanes. Terrible, he says. In trucks, uh, you have to veer off the road to avoid uh, undulations. Thanks for that text. Another one saying that Millington to Yorktown Road on the York Peninsula is also dangerous. Keep those thoughts coming. You can text me 0467922891 or phone 1300 Now, you might uh, be madly reaping massive crops. We're hearing some huge yields coming off. South Australia at the moment, South Australian crops at the moment. But uh, there was a lot of weather through the growing season as well, a bit of grain on the ground. And Grain Producers SA says, oh, sorry, Grain Producers Australia SA says that it expects an emergency permit to use double strength mouse bait will be extended for 2023 and made permanent in the longer term. Trial work has shown that double strength zinc phosphide bait is four times more effective at controlling mice than the traditional bait. Andrew Wiedemann, Southern Director for GPA, says, as farmers and researchers have been working on double-strength bait for a long time. The research work on this has been going on over the last four or five years, really, with the work being promoted through the National Mouse Management Working Group, promoting you know new technologies and, and the opportunities to try and control mice uh, better. And uh, the Zinc 50, uh, as uh, listeners are probably aware also, we applied for an emergency permit over 12 months ago now to be put in place so that we could have access to the researched uh, Zinc 50. Now, the research has now been proven and peer-reviewed and uh, has shown to be extremely effective on, on mice control and much better than what we were seeing in terms of control with Zinc 25. So that's still a product, of course, that's available and, and will work, but in 
the cases where we were seeing aversion issues, large numbers of mice and uh, more food on the ground, the zinc 50 uh, has now been proven to... Uh, be able to control more mice numbers and more efficiently and more effectively. Okay, so you talked about aversion issues there and that's where maybe using the the traditional strength, the 25 grams per kilo zinc phosphide bait where the mice have received a sublethal dose and then they've got an aversion to the bait and then they're going to be very hard to kill? Yes, that's correct. So once they've had basically a bad taste in their mouth, they uh, don't come back for bait for six to eight weeks. And of course, they can breed, multiply and, and continue to have a, a large population uh, there for people to control. And, and look, I, I'm uh, quite pleased that the work was really initiated through the growers throughout the Wimmera and, and particularly around Birchip, where they were seeing this and reporting it. And we were able to then take that through to CSIRO, funded by the Grange Research Development Corporation. And uh, essentially, the, the research work and the outcome has, has all been done from essentially the central Victoria. So, you know, so this all this work is sort of pointing, obviously, Angus, to uh, a future registration. And and that future registration, obviously, is going to require a lot more detail around uh, the environment, the usage patterns, and we've, along with the regulator, the APVMA, have developed a training platform for growers to use, and they will have to use that to get access to purchase the bait. And, and that is going to be a huge step up for farmers, but in this day and age when we're trying to prove our story around providence and sustainability and, and being in control of what we do, this is just a starting uh, process around that as well. When will that kick in, that requirement for growers to do that GPA course to access the double strength bait? Uh, we envisage that'll be launched at the timing of the next extension of the current permit, which will also include extra manufacturers. And so that will start on the 1st of January 2023. And once the regulator has put that out there, then obviously the work will then continue to look at future registration of the product. In terms of mice numbers, Andrew, uh, uh, there's an expectation that after this harvest, there'll be a lot of grain left behind, uh, whether that's flooded out areas or lodged grain or, or wind affected crops. So is there going to be a pretty heavy feed load there for mice to breed up? Yes, look, unfortunately, Angus, uh, we do see these types of years uh, as the precursor to a, a run of mouse issues. And yes, I'm expecting that we're going to see a, a build-up of population, particularly with this cool weather as well and moisture that's around. Uh, and the feed availability, as you've suggested, there's going to be quite a lot of that. Uh, I think growers are well aware now of trying to manage that also in their farming programs. There's a lot more research being done around using trays under the backs of headers and things and showing yield losses. And I think farmers have become a lot more aware of how to use those tools as well. So it's a combination of that. But look, unfortunately, I think with the weather pattern, I'm already seeing a lot more mouse activity in stubbles at night. And I'm sure other growers are seeing the same thing. So I'm expecting we'll see a, a build-up of that population sort of through February, March, and then uh, unfortunately usually coinciding with us trying to put a crop in the ground, Angus. So, uh, yeah, so this will be timely for growers. We'll have a, a much better product in my mind. Southern Director with Grain Producers Australia, Andrew Wiedemann, speaking with Angus Verley. It's 20 past 12. Some information has come out of the government. Today's River Murray flow update shows that the floodwater peak is still due in Renmark around the end of December and the forecasts remain between 190 and 220 gigalitres a day. But if you're like me and don't really know what that looks like, uh, gigalitres a day, they are going to be uh, starting to update water heights to give a better picture of conditions 
conditions on the ground. So uh, the Department of Environment and Water will provide daily height forecasts for various population centres as well. You just have to go to the uh, government website there. Um, they've got some um, expected peaks released now, uh, Renmark between the 24th and 4th and 31st of December, Berry between the 25th of December and the 5th of January, Wakery between the 1st and 12th of January in Swan Reach between the 5th and 16th of January and Murray Bridge between the 6th and 17th of January. So a fair range there. Obviously, there's been uh, some uh, road closures that will continue to happen, ferry closures and disruptions to the power network and reduced services. Overnight, the SES issued an emergency message for Walker Flat after floodwaters threatened to isolate the town. And there is also a current Watch and Act message for Cornermont. Pernong and Bow Hill uh, with more than 1,100 properties throughout the Riverland that have been inundated so far. But this could get to about 4,000 when the river is expected to peak in December. So if you need any uh, help, the River Murray hotline is one 362 And you can call that any time because there's still a long way to go with this River Murray flood that is happening at the moment and will continue to for some time now. But for farmers, pumps and power, they're the main topics that farmers are bringing to Barb Cowie, who is the regional coordinator for Riverland Murray Lands with Persa. Ms Cowie was at a public meeting in Murray Bridge last night to keep people up to date and what sort of help they can access. Basically uh, we have a lot of people that irrigate out of the river and there's just about every commodity that you can think of that, that use the river and their their main concern is making sure that they have access to water especially coming into summer. It does seem as though power is the biggest issue. Uh, the government has put out grants for generators. How well is that being taken up? There is the, the Department of Industry and Skills are looking at the actual generator grants and uh, so that's not part of our primary industry's focus. So there is the $4,000 for, for uh, primary producer uh, generators but the Department of uh, Primary Industries also has their own grant which is around uh, keeping irrigators pumping. So it's around moving infrastructure, uh, connecting or higher power, moving power and or uh, if larger generators needed the potential to actually use that too. We had an expression of interest that's now changed to an application form and it's been received very well to this stage. Yeah. What sort of interest have you heard from, from growers in accessing this support? Look, prior to, uh, we, we had an expression of interest open and it was really encouraging the number of people that were emailing and calling and asking for the additional information now that the when it was released. So we're now contacting all of those people and working with them to put in their applications. What's it like on the ground at the moment? Because people approach situations like this differently. Some people are more inclined to sit back and wait. Some people are a bit more proactive. How are people going? Uh, it's really mixed. Um, the interesting thing about a flood like this is that it does start at one end of the river, but you do have uh, preparedness happening all the way along. And what we've seen is um, communities coming together, smaller groups of people coming together and really motivating and supporting each other. As a whole, irrigators are proactive and, and really have been trying to find the best information and actually look at their infrastructure to be ahead of the game. So we've we found that they've been organised as a whole um, from an irrigation perspective. Beyond the irrigation, the dairy farmers are the, the main ones who are going to be affected by this. 
From a livestock welfare point of view, what role will PERSA play both should there need to be animal rescues and then also uh, in the aftermath when these animals have to be fed? As a whole, we've been talking to the industry bodies who have also been working with their members, as well as talking to people. We've gone through, we have a PIC system, so we've contacted everyone with a PIC number, which is a, a basically a tag for an animal, and we've asked them to consider the animal and uh, what it's... what is needed to happen in case of inundation. On the whole, most people have higher land or have adjusted or have sourced other areas if they are in low-lying areas. Having said that, if anyone in the public does uh, see animals that are stranded, we do have a triage that uh, if they call the PERSA hotline, we, we will triage it appropriately, whether it be through the RSPCA, the SES, if it's a, um, a, a water rescue, or if it's an animal uh, welfare, welfare issue, it could be primary industries staff themselves. And these are farmed animals, but you've got some wild animals around here as well. What's the snake situation like? Ah, snakes. Well, we can all appreciate that we all have a home, or most of us have a home, and um, for the snakes, their home is also being inundated. And so we just really ask people to understand that they're just moving to higher ground as well. So snakes are a problem, and as water continues to continue to rise and, and um, the swamps become wetter, the snakes will come higher and, and we will be seeing more. We're already starting to see that in some of the um, higher river uh, town so look please be look where you're going be be aware there are going to be snakes out there and we uh, encourage you to keep a snake catcher's uh, phone number handy just in case that was Barb Cowie, the regional coordinator for Riverland Murraylands with Perza. And yeah, as it gets warmer, I'm sure the snakes will uh, get uh, even more visible with them moving away from the, the river as the water rises. We'll find out more on what's happening weather-wise, though. I've got John Fisher from the Bureau of Meteorology with me. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So it's uh, starting to warm up a little. What's happening weather-wise? Yeah, just a little. It's taking its time, though. So, uh, yeah, we've got a very slow-moving pattern at the moment, so a large high uh, situated well to the, the south of the bite there and that's not really going to move too much over the next few days, just gradually uh, contract eastwards but uh, today still seeing uh, some fresh uh, south to southeasterly winds push up uh, so temperatures yeah, still below average and a little bit of cloud around the southern agricultural area uh, but starting to, to break up this afternoon uh, so temperatures today looking uh, around the, the mid uh, or low to mid 20s for most uh, locations some places aren't quite making it past 20 degrees uh, today but uh, yeah, pretty much dry across the, the state as well. We had some very light showers around uh, kind of the, the southern coastal areas and, and ranges this morning. But uh, yeah, generally dry from uh, here on out, apart from up in the, the far northwest where we are still uh, seeing some, uh, some showers and thunderstorms likely to develop this afternoon. Uh, and, and not much change over the next couple of days, uh, Cassie. So as that high does gradually move eastwards, temperatures coming up a, a few degrees each day uh, and, and the wind stream will head round a little bit more southeast to, to easterly uh, as we head towards the weekend. Uh, but still a bit of freshness in those winds, particularly around uh, coastal areas through the, the afternoon with sea breezes. So we do have some marine wind warnings out for, for strong winds around uh, a selection of coastal areas. But uh, uh, yeah, for, for the land, just some kind of moderate to, to fresh uh, winds there. And uh, the thunderstorms up in the far northwest, uh, we'll probably see a bit of an accumulation over a few days uh, up through there with uh, thunderstorms each uh, afternoon uh, and mostly northwest of Cooper Pedy. But uh, 
extending a bit further eastwards uh, on, on Monday and, and out to Monday we're looking at cumulative rainfall totals of uh, around 2 to 10 millimetres across the, the pastoral districts and west coast uh, but up in that far northwest, uh, potentially in that kind of 10 to 30 millimetre range and, and even some isolated falls up to, to maybe 50 or 60 millimetres with those storms so yeah it could be quite wet up in the far northwest but generally dry uh, elsewhere until the middle of next week when those showers and thunderstorms uh, move eastwards with that trough. Thanks so much for that. John Fisher from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny tomorrow. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 10 and 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 20s. The lower western will be sunny. Overnight there, temperatures are falling to around 9 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the mid 20s. Coming up in the next half hour or so, we're going to look at this draft plan to get on top of deer. Deer are causing a lot of issues right across the country. So more on what's being looked at to try and get them under control in the next half hour. I'm Cassie Huff. We're approaching 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. We're starting to hear about towns and various areas getting cut off with the flood water making its way through South Australia now. But uh, you think about perhaps water going through people's houses, but there are lots of different effects when an area does get cut off. Workers now have to come from um, either Blanchetown or Murray Bridge to get to work and some just live on the other side of the walk flat ferry so uh, their drive time now is probably added by another hour so uh, we've got a couple that are now camping probably on property caravans and whatever to cut their drive time down so yeah that's probably the, the unforeseen that people don't see is is how people get cut off I'll have more from an almond grower at Walker Flat, an area that has been in focus in the last day or so with rising river levels. And a feral deer plan, a draft plan, is being released for comment as deer are exploding in Australia. It's estimated there are now one to two million feral deer in Australia. That's a huge increase from an estimated 200,000 in the year 2000. So a big effort is going into trying to get on top of these large feral deer populations. I'll have more on that soon. First, though, to the news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Premier Peter Malinowskis says the state has not seen a natural disaster like the Riverland floods in 50 years. He says that officials must not only prepare for waters peaking, but also for what happens when waters start to recede. Mr Malinowskis says the floods will be lower than 1956 levels, but the flow rates could be similar to 1974 levels. Australia's unemployment rate remains steady at 3.4% despite the shock addition of 64,000 extra jobs over the past month. The Bureau of Statistics figures show the proportion of Australians in work or looking for work returned to a record high in November and the cost of living crunch is seeing a surge in demand for the the services of food charities. Even before the holiday season kicks in, Food Bank has given out a record $250 million worth of food and groceries across the nation this year with demand increasing by about a third. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt. An almond grower at Walker Flat is having to use tracks he has never driven on to move infrastructure amid the floods that are now making their way through the Riverland. And his workers are actually camping on site to avoid long drives because of road closures and ferry closures as well. An emergency evacuation warning was issued last night for the small town near Manham. Peter Cavallaro, who has orchards high up on the Adelaide side of the River Murray, spoke to Eliza Berlage about how things are looking at his place. So the ferry is already closed. There was a sinkhole. I've only heard this secondhand. One of my workers, my actually my assistant manager, lives on the other side of the river. She had to go via Blanchetown this morning to get to work. The ferry closed probably about 4 o'clock this morning because there's a sinkhole in Angus Valley Road. You're saying with a lot of the roads closed off, you're going down some uh, so tracks that you haven't used in a while? Yeah, well, I've never used it. I had a call from my neighbour that they wanted to cut our fence, and I said, yeah, not a problem. But, yeah, apparently this was a track that was used in the 1974 floods. So, yeah, we're, we're actually quite lucky, but, yeah, it, it sort of brings back a few memories for a few people. But, yeah, it actually gives us access. So we're going through a neighbour's place, so, uh, yeah, it's quite cool. So what sort of work are you up to at the moment to get everything in, in place to protect your crop yeah. and your infrastructure? Oh, no, the, the orchard's OK. That's way above the river, but it's all our pumping infrastructure. We've had to move pump sheds. We've had to have, move a transformer and all our switching gear about 70 metres up the hill. And I'd like to put a you know, big thank you to SA Power Networks and the Mid-Murray Council for allowing us to do those sort of works and obviously those works to happen in the short period of time that they did because basically both sides of the road are now blocked off and there's no way in the world they get trucks in. So they've done a fantastic job. Have you had or will you have power cut off to your place? Not now. We should be okay now because our feed comes from the other way. So now that we've moved our transformer, we're still not running on power yet. We're running on generators at the moment. So that's, that's sort of testing us at the moment just with obviously getting the amount of water that we require. So uh, hopefully by next week we'll have our full pumping infrastructure running. But yeah, no, we should be okay at this stage. I think we've had a guarantee that uh, we shouldn't get cut off. This obviously comes at a busy time with harvest not so far away, so you'll be able to keep keep pumping water for your almonds? Yeah, we're one of the lucky ones. Obviously there's people in other areas that have obviously got the opposite. They've got flooded orchards and those sort of things. Um, And then there's obviously some that have had power cut off. So, yeah, we're one of the lucky ones that we're able to keep pumping. Yeah, a lot of the the roads are closed off around your place. How are you going with with moving about to get to different bits of your property or or get supplies in? We're okay because we're on the Adelaide side of the river. But like I said, workers now have to come from um, either Blanchetown or Murray Bridge. To get to work and some just live on the other side of the walk flat ferry so uh, their drive time now is probably added by another hour so uh, we've got a couple that are now camping probably on property caravans and whatever to cut their drive time down so yeah that's probably the, the unforeseen that people don't see is is how people get cut off and uh, the extra hours that it has to take to get to work i now even our uh, supplies like you're saying they got to come from from riverland so yeah they have to go by a large town. It's an inconvenience, definitely. No good with uh, fuel prices the way they are as well. No, no, exactly right. Well, well, basically, and again, there's probably a a lot of people that are going to attest to this, is the fuel price is affecting because we're running on on generators and uh, that's costing us anywhere between $1,000 and $1,500 a day just to run generators, just to keep water to the property. 
Do you think you'll be able to switch those generators off next week then? We're hoping to, but we're hoping that uh, we'll get our connections done. Uh, SA Power Networks are all done. It's just our electricians now that have to get everything wired up. And it's been a mammoth job to move a pump shed in two weeks. And just for people who might not really know what these pump sheds look like, how big is that and how do you even move something like that? It's not as big as some. Some are quite big. Ours is uh, probably six metres by six metres. It's not a matter of moving a shed, you're building a brand new shed. So um, we've had to get a shed builder in and obviously with labour and that sort of stuff, trying to get these things to happen. We've been quite lucky that we've had people that have just jumped in and said, yep, we're here to help. So to get what we've done in two weeks would normally take probably six months. So we've been actually quite lucky. And there's been some grants made available to help with the cost of generators and grants up to $25,000 for people moving infrastructure on their property. Are those things that your business will will look into to try to just help meet some of those costs? Yeah, we'll, we'll apply for them. This is, you know, probably, you know, a half a million dollar spend. So it's, it's not something that we've budgeted for but it's something that's been necessary. Walker Flat Almond Grower Peter Cavallaro speaking with Eliza Burlage and the Department of Infrastructure and Transport says the Walker Flat Ferry is closed to the general public but local residents are still able to use it to evacuate and as Eliza Burlage was alluding to there, the uh, Department of Primary Industries, or Department of Agriculture, has grants of uh, up to $25,000 available for primary producers for the costs of relocating or re-establishing irrigation infrastructure and alternative power sources like generators. So there's more information uh, available online you can go to persa.gov.au slash floods now uh, we'll move away from flooding now to an issue that uh, has been building in this country and that is the control of feral deer now there's a draft plan that has just been released for comments and it's basically about setting up a nationally coordinated approach to ultimately slow and reduce the growth of feral deer populations in Australia because there has been a rapid increase from 200,000 in the year 2000 to now about one to two million feral deer across Australia. Now, the plan is to stop the spread of large feral deer populations, control or eradicate small isolated populations before they spread, and then, and then also protect significant sites and species from feral deer incursion. Andrew Cox from the Invasive Species Council says it's about time something was done about deer. Yeah, look, deer are spreading across Australia, across the whole continent uh, and Tasmania, and uh, I think it's about time we've had a, a national plan deer action plan it brings together the best thinking and it actually sets an ambitious goal of a national containment zone going to be the only way we're going to stop deer covering the whole continent the scientists that have sort of studied the the six species of deer that are in australia have confirmed that they are set to cover every habitat type in every part of australia unless we can stop this this spread of deer and what does it mean if they do that? Will they will uh, you know a, a species uh, likely to be uh, destroyed as a result? Are we are we likely to see an impact on other other animals? Maybe some endangered animals too. Deer are, are pretty pretty ma- massive consumers of vegetation. Uh, they open up the understory. They ring bark trees. They wallow in wetlands. So they're taking away the feed from native animals. They're damaging native plants they're just pushing out other native species whether we're talking about wombats and kangaroos but some of the, the, the smaller animals too just their birds are more liable for predation from other feral animals like cats and foxes they just wreak havoc and um, our continent has a 
and its animals have evolved without deer. We don't have any hard-hoofed animals natively, and so to have deer right across the country would just be devastating. Andrew Cox from the Invasive Species Council. Ted Rowley is a beef producer in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales, and he says in the last decade he's seen an explosion in deer numbers, reducing his carrying capacity and threatening his animals with pests and diseases. We bought this property about 10 years ago in Moonbar in the Snowy Mountains and we saw a few deer. But the nature of invasive pest animals is such that over a period of about 10 years you can go from 30 to 500 poor deer in particular quite quickly. So when we bought the property there were deer here and they were at the beginning of their exponential population explosion. Five years after we bought it we formed a deer group with the neighbours we were shooting four to 5,000 deer a year across the landscape with the help of a commercial harvester. And still not really making a dent? You have to cull about 45% of the population of deer every year to hold ground. Deer reproduce at 35 to 50% depending on conditions. And of course the last two years have been bonzi years for deer. And what does it do to your carrying capacity, you know, the, the feed on ground? It had several effects. When the neighbours and I started talking about deer, we worked out that deer were costing us about half our stocking rate, and it's it's quite subtle. So there are direct agricultural production losses, but of course deer carry about 15 diseases endemic to sheep and cattle. So deer can share a whole raft of diseases, Yoni's disease, foot and mouth, uh, internal parasites such as liver fluke are carried by deer, which makes life difficult in terms of maintaining biosecurity. And so you got involved in the National Action Plan. Do you think that by being able to, to, to stop this, to stem the flow into other areas that, uh, you know, to hold them within a certain area, you think that plan will work? Yes, I do. I, I think one has to remember that deer impacts urban and peri-urban areas as well as agricultural areas. Our area has a lot of land managers who don't farm commercially. So we needed a coordinated response across states and territories in Australia to work out how to handle these things. The National Feral Deer Action Plan was an attempt to put some standards and some coordination across states and territories and to support states and territories with a, a concerted action. Remember that I see deer, feral deer, as, as a rabbit plague. Each deer represents something like 50 to 100 rabbits because they're really clever, they're much more difficult than most vertebrate pest animals to manage. On top of that, we need to remember that the environmental and community impacts from feral deer are very large. Uh, years ago, I remember asking the panel beater in, in Genderbine how his uh, deer collisions were going, his crash repair business. He said he just started working on more deer collisions than kangaroo collisions, and that that rang alarm bells with me because that meant that it wasn't only farmers and rural land managers who were paying the cost of having deer. So how will you keep them in a certain area with, with, with culling, you know, with uh, commercial shooting, with fencing? How's that going to work? Well, I think you try all of those things. The National Action Plan for Feral Deer identifies a range of control measures. As you said, fencing. Fencing is very expensive, and I live in the mountains, not on the plains. Ground shooting aerial shooting, use of quite sophisticated technologies for 
culling with firearms, thermal imaging scanners, thermal imaging telescopic sites on your rifle. The action plan identifies that we need to move to helicopter culling with thermal imagery in order to knock down an existing population. And then we're going to have to maintain that knockdown level through the use of ongoing baiting, ongoing commercial harvesting. The first thing that people usually say to me is, well, why don't you shoot them and eat them? And I say, well, I can't eat 30 a week. The other thing that people say to me is, well, get some recreational hunters in. I like hunting. I've been a recreational hunter since I was 14. The issue is that recreational hunting is fun on Saturday afternoon. I always say it's a bit like playing tennis. Playing tennis and recreational hunting has about the same impact on the population of feral deer. Ted Rowley is a beef producer in the snowy mountains of New South Wales. He's speaking with Michael Condon there about his experience with deer on his property. So the case has been made for why there's a need for a national draft plan to deal with feral deer. And Lise Webkin is the National Deer Management Coordinator. She's based in South Australia. Good afternoon. Hi, Cathy. So what are the main efforts outlined in this draft plan that's just been released to control deer? Yeah, thanks. Um, The plan really prioritises the need to um, contain and reduce the impact of large populations that we've got feral deer, as well as to sort of try and eradicate smaller isolated populations. Um, It also has an, uh, it emphasises the need to protect significant sites from the impacts of feral deer, and these include places like World Heritage Areas and Ramsar wetlands, um, uh, those kinds of things where deer currently are or could be in the near future. Um, it also encourages the development of new control tools that we need to augment the current ones we've got, um, such as humane shooting, trapping, fencing. Um, but it's it's important to note that we don't actually have many tools in the toolbox for feral deer compared with some of the other established pest animals like foxes and rabbits and feral pigs that have been um, a problem for longer and we've had more time to develop tools for those other species. Um, and the plan also prioritises the need to coordinate our control efforts across land tenures because deer roam across property boundaries um, and so we really need to work together and encourage neighbours to work together so we can ensure that deer can't harbour, I guess, in some areas where they can breed up and spread. So definitely the message is that we need to work together in a really strategic way. There, you mentioned there that they go across borders and I've just had a text in from John saying there are so many deer in Cleveland and Greenhill National Parks that it's going to cause accidents on Greenhill Road just above Burnside. It goes to the point that a lot of people make that uh, often they build up in places like national parks and state forests and things like that. How will this plan look at addressing some of those areas that aren't as managed as, say, farmland? Yeah, sure. The peri-urban areas are a big focus of the plan as well because, as you've mentioned, deer encroach into our towns and cities. And this is certainly happening uh, along the eastern seaboard a lot with uh, deer coming into those areas. Um, And so, yeah, the plan is certainly looking at what we can do to protect those areas and uh, manage across tenures using a range of tools. Does Do peri-urban areas um, limit the use of, say, shooting because it's it's not something that's done closer to towns? Um, there, there are a range of things, but it's certainly more limited in what we can do. Trapping and shooting can be used in really um, in careful and safe ways where, where shooting's not safe or permitted, then traps can be used. Um, but we're starting to 
get a better handle on uh, ways to do that and ways to manage it. But certainly it's really important to um, be prepared for deer that uh, are moving into these areas and try and keep them from getting into the streets. So if we can manage them a bit further out where we do have um, the ability to use um you know, firearms and that sort of thing, then that really provides a buffer around our streets where it's more difficult to do so. Trapping and, and yes, it, oh, sorry. No, no, yeah. you go. <laughs> oh, I guess it, it, certainly for Adelaide, um, we don't yet have the problems that we do on the eastern seaboard. So in some places they have deer. Oh, in, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in Canberra. the Illawarra areas, Canberra, that's right. And so I think... In South Australia, we have the benefit in being able to see what's been happening on the eastern seaboard, seaboard and try and uh, learn from that and be prepared so we don't have to, um, yeah, endure the, the costs, I guess, that the, the eastern seaboard has. And certainly in the last 30 years, um, land managers, both rural and urban areas, they've seen the feral deer go from, you know, being like a novelty to um, being quite widespread, particularly up that eastern seaboard area. And those main ways so, of dealing with them, the, the shooting and, and trapping ways, that, that works for individual animals. But as you said, as part of this plan, you're trying to look at not only the, the smaller numbers but also the large numbers. What sort of ideas are being put forward to deal with large numbers? Sure. Well, some of the tools, when deer get into really high numbers, certainly aerial shooting is, a really, is, a, is an effective method because you can knock down numbers really quite quickly. Um, so that's definitely something that is um, being used more at the eastern seaboard and also in South Australia. So as I said before, in South Australia, um, we, we don't have the problems that we that the eastern seaboard does. We, we only have about 40,000 deer, which sounds like a lot, but it's a far cry from the one to two million that we have elsewhere in the country. So, yeah, we have definitely have a window of opportunity to, to tackle them so we don't end up um, like... Victoria and New South Wales um, and yeah it's definitely uh, there's, there's some really good news in South Australia South Australia is definitely on the front foot with trying to tackle the 40,000 that we've got with its plans to actually eradicate feral deer from the state and help deer impacted farmers in particular um, and South Australia's just started a terrific program that's a partnership between PERSA the Landscape Boards and Livestock SA, and it's funded by the Australian Government, South Australian Government and Landscape Boards. And... ...thousand that I was talking about before. We just missed a little of what you had to say there. Sorry, we just had some interference there. But I was going to to ask you because it has been raised in the past that uh, often these plans are a bit dismissive of trying to find a way to actually use the meat rather than just uh, seeing it, it if it's an aerial car just left to. Um, it, to uh, decompose where it is or attract uh, feral animals or whatnot. Is there any effort to bring in some sort of commercial harvesting that could see deer used for, if not human consumption, pet food? Yeah, sure. Um, I think across the country uh, there are a range of ways that we can manage them and certainly commercial harvesting where meat is uh, used for either of those things that you just mentioned, human or pet food, um, is part of the solution. And I think... Um, yeah, yeah, it's part of the solution for sure, um, and and that's done in many states, and it is done in South Australia as well. I guess when you have an aerial 
aerial shoot uh, where thousands, potentially hundreds of deer might be um, controlled in a short period of time, which is an effective way to help manage the the, the problem and knock the numbers down. Um, not all of those carcasses can be used in a short period of time, but it's definitely part of the solution for some, some areas, yes. Well, this is a draft plan and uh, yes. I'm sure there'll be a lot come out of it. What do you want people to do who uh, want to have their say on the draft plan? Oh, the, yeah, we're really looking forward to a feedback from all sorts of people. So the plan is available on um, a website, which is um, feraldeerplan.org.au, um, and there's instructions there on how to, to have feedback. Um, uh, yeah, and the, the consultation is available, is, is out there for three months, so you've got plenty of time to, to have your say and um, to express some ideas of what, of what, what else could go in there. Yeah. Well, I'll be interested to hear what people come up with. We might catch up in a a few months. Thank you so much for joining me today. Terrific. Thank you very much, Cathy. Annalise Wibkin, who is the National Deer Management Coordinator, speaking there about this draft plan to try and get on top of a growing issue uh, when it comes to pest deer in Australia. And uh, sounds like uh, South Australia is in a good position to hopefully get on top of this. It is seven minutes to one. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Finally today, we'll move away from deer to milk and consumers are starting to balk at the price of branded milk in the supermarket. According to Rabobank, shoppers are trading down to uh, private label milk and away from some of the more expensive branded products. In fact, this year, the price of milk in the supermarket increased at the fastest rate since records began in the 80s. Michael Harvey, senior analyst with Rabobank, told Josh Becker it could be a tough year ahead for Australian consumers when it comes to milk. The first thing to note is clearly we're seeing very high dairy pricing in in grocery and in outer home channels in many parts of the world, and Australia included. And that comes down to the simple fact that, you know, there is high cost of production across dairy supply chain, starting at Farmgate with, you know, very high milk pricing for, for lots of producers around the world, feeding through to, you know, processing and getting product to market. So what we are seeing is a lot of dairy companies locally and globally needing to take action on pricing just to try and restore some margins in, in the supply chain given the, the cost headwinds. So the clear watch in all this is what is the consumer response to all that. The, the, the good news is, I mean, dairy consumption will have a generally high level of resilience in most economies, particularly in, in a developed economy like Australia. Uh, but there is no doubt already signs of consumer response and, and that can take a number of different forms depending on the product you're looking at and, and the market and the economy. But there's a lot of trading down. So, you know, consumers look to bulk buys and, and, and value offerings and they potentially look at private label over branded products. But the key watch is really around how significant is there in terms of any volume response? And and there are some signs where certain products, there is less consumption taking place. So we're keeping a very close eye on that because the reality is while we're, we're nearing the peak in terms of price inflation for consumer, the household squeeze on, on budget really won't peak until next year. So the, the consumer response still has a little a little bit of runway left. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that through 2023. So what's the significance of that shift in preferences from consumers at the dairy cabinet? Well, the context there is important. I mean, if you go back to the most recent CPI numbers that came out for the September quarter, we had you know food inflation at 
two-decade highs. And when you, you know, break that out, it was broad-based. So it was across nearly every category uh, that consumers are buying food products. And, of course, dairy was a core component of that. And if you looked at the just the liquid milk category within the ABS numbers, you know, it, it, it posted its highest uh, annual increase since they began tracking records way back in the 80s. So, you know, the dairy inflation story is very much part of the broader food inflation story. What's your view on milk production across uh, the dairy regions of Australia and what the outlook is going to be for Australia in the coming months? Well, the, the real challenge for Australia has been the weather and, the, you know, the, clearly the, the distru- disruption we've seen, particularly through the spring peak this season because of the excessive rainfall in lots lots of production regions across the east coast, but more importantly, the, the flooding that we've seen impacting in, you know, New South Wales and, and, and Victoria as well. So national production's not tracking that well. It's down year on year through the key production season. And and it's not, you know, the, the challenge here is that, you know, milk prices are at record levels across most most production regions in Australia, you know, margins on farm are not too bad despite the cost headwinds, but it's not translating into production growth because of that weather weather disruption. Now, weather risk is going to linger for a little bit just given how much rainfall has been around and what the outlook looks like, but hopefully a more normal season will we'll start to see some stability in that milk production uh, next year. But when you zoom out here, I mean, this is we're unique here in Australia and New Zealand that we are starting to see milk supply recover in most export regions around the world after a, a, a quite an extended period of sluggish production growth. So production's recovering in the US, production's growing again in some key regions in Europe. It's recovering in South America. It's really only... New Zealand and Australia where we've had weather-related disruption, we haven't seen any growth this year. And that feeds into the broader picture here. When we're looking at the global market, we had you know, we had record high commodity pricing for dairy products earlier this year. We've seen, depending on the product, you know, falls between 20 and 30% since those peaks. And that's the subtle shift in the supply and demand fundamentals. There is a bit more milk around in export regions. China's buying a little bit less product from the global market as they sort of deal with inventory and, and and sluggish consumption through lockdown. And that's why we've had that price correction in commodities uh, up until now. Michael Harvey, Senior Analyst with Rubberbank, ending that report from Josh Becker. We've had a, a text in from Mike from Atherston who says he moved entire herds of animals in Africa for years by herding them and then capturing them rather than shooting them individually. Thanks so much for getting in touch. I'm sure they would appreciate your feedback on that consultation on the draft plan to look at feral deer control. It's been great to have your company today. There's more on your ABC local radio this afternoon with Deb Tribe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cass. There certainly is. In fact, it's the last producer's challenge of 2022. Oh, make it a hard one. Yeah, well, Regan, you know, she always nails it. So if you want to bamboozle Regan, today is your last chance for 2022. So why not queue up as soon as we get going? If you have a particular niggling question you'd like answered, we will try and get it for you, or Regan will try and get it for you as well. We'll start at the river again. Yesterday we were speaking about wildlife. Today there has been an announcement made about what will be happening to pets of evacuees. So we're going to speak to the Minister at the top of the program, find out more about that. Absolutely. I've been hearing about snakes on the move. Oh yes, snakes on the floodplain, yes. Yeah, they're everywhere. (laughs) We'll keep listening. Deb Tribe will have lots of great information and some fun for you this afternoon. It is coming up to one o'clock. ABC Radio. It's yours. Yours for sharing your news. Yours for airing your local perspective. Yours in good times and bad. ABC Radio.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.